a congregation who has loved me so well for the past two years I've been here in Kansas City. So I'm very grateful for this opportunity this morning. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll look at God's Word. Father God, you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Lord, as we just sung, we are pray that we would stand on every promise of your word. So often we come to you or to events in life standing on false promises on sandy ground. Lord, we pray now that we would be oriented by your spirit, that our eyes would be open to truth so that we would stand on a firm foundation, the firm foundation of your word that you've given us. Lord, conform our consciences to your word, inform our feelings and our intuitions by your will, not by lies or by the flesh. Lord, be with us now as we come to you and to your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Everyone is familiar with the story of the tortoise and the hare. You have a rabbit who challenges a turtle to a race. It's not fair. Rabbits are faster. And so they, for some reason, the turtle accepts and they get to the starting line. And as expected, the rabbit shoots off, big lead. He, uh, what what happens? He he lies down and takes a nap because he's so cocky. He's so sure of himself. Um, And as he's sleeping, the, the tortoise plods along, overtakes him, and crosses the finish line first. What's the point of that obviously made-up story? Uh, That slow and steady wins the race. That's one of Aesop's fables. Uh, I remember having a little book of those with illustrations as a kid. Uh, A fable is a fictional story that points to truth. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at a true story. Jonah is a real story that points to the truth, to Christ. Almost everyone, whether or not you grew up in church, is familiar with this story of Jonah and the whale from the Old Testament. That means it took place before Jesus in ancient Israel. Uh, it's, a mi- it's, it's a minor prophet. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. They're called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're smaller books than the major prophets. And since they're hard to find, I would encourage everyone to open to the table of contents in the front of your Bible and find Jonah, and then turn there. We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on 774. 774. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? 
Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There are a few ways we can approach the Bible and this text specifically. Um, we can approach it skeptically. We can approach it from a, a kind of a neutral or scientific place. Or we can approach it on its own terms as the inspired word of God. The first group, those who approach it skeptically, would probably see the Bible as a collection of ancient documents, um, just people's opinions about God. They would actually probably view it as a bunch of stupid ancient people trying to figure out what's going on in the world. They would probably look at this story and view it um, as totally made up. They do. They wouldn't probably. They do. That's how a lot of people view this. Uh, a second way of looking at the Bible is to come to it from a neutral starting point. This person who does it this way says, I'm going to come to this text without any preconceived notions, uh, and I'm going to test it to see if it's true. It's a modern, seemingly modern way and an acceptable, acceptable way of coming to a text. Um, that's, after all, what we do when we read a story in the news. Um, we read the facts, we see if it's believable, and then we form an opinion about it. Um, I'm sure a lot of you saw in the news just the other week, um, a fisherman in Cape Cod was actually swallowed by a whale. Uh, I remember, so I lived on Cape Cod for a year, and it wasn't until the, the last weekend we were there, we were out at the National Seashore, and Right on the horizon, you could kind of see whales either breaching or doing their little blowhole thing and shooting up water. Uh, so there are actually whales out there. And this past week, there was a big news story that a whale swallowed a lobster fisherman while he was kind of getting caught up in a school of fish. Um, I don't think it's wrong to look at that story and come to it uh, from a neutral place and say, I don't know if this really happened. Let's hear the guy's testimony and 
determine whether or not it happened. I personally think it did. Uh, but the Bible's not a news story, and it's not meant to be read as one. And we never come to it truly neutrally. When we think we do, we're actually putting ourselves in place of a judge over God and what he's revealed. We're putting ourselves in the judge's seat over the God who sits in ruling and reigning over the world. We don't get to decide what the text means. The author does. So this supposedly neutral way of reading the Bible is actually an unfaithful way of reading it. In every other endeavor we pursue as mankind, it's actually good and right to place ourselves over it. When we're looking at nature, at math or science or the arts, even civilization as a whole, uh, it's rightly viewed as something we can figure out and try and rule and reign over. God's given us dominion over this world. But in religion, we are called to put ourselves under the word. And so when we look at Jonah 1 this morning, we want to come to it in that third way of viewing scripture. We want to treat it as the revealed word of God. Now we're not coming to it as mindless people who are blinded by our faith, but we're coming to it as simple creatures who are confessing that we are indebted to the God who made us, to our creator for our understanding of him. Putting ourselves in the judge's seat is not only foolish, it's treasonous. So as we look at this first chapter this morning, I think it's important that we keep in mind that it's a true story, that it's relevant to our lives, and that it's about Jesus. The whole Bible has one divine author. It has over 40 human authors, but one divine author with one main purpose and one main character, and that's Jesus. Jesus is in every single book of the Bible. He says so himself in Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, the risen Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he says, In all the scriptures, I am there, and he's explaining this to his disciples. The divine author has orchestrated history and recorded it in the Bible in such a way that Jesus Christ is actually there in the Old Testament. When we say Jesus is here in the book of Jonah, we're not making inappropriate connections. We're not saying, uh, well, let's look at this one ancient Egyptian myth and let's look at this Native American myth and kind of, oh, we see some similarities there. Uh, That's not what we're doing. We're making, we're recognizing legitimate foreshadowing that the divine author has placed in the book. It's like when we watch a movie and when we get to the big plot twist, the twist ending, we can look back on the rest of the movie and rightly understand it. So Jesus himself treats this book specifically as real history that points to him. In Matthew 12, 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, Jesus says, is a real prophet who preached to real people. And he says that he is the greater and true fulfillment of this story. And so that's our main point this morning. Our main point this morning is that Jonah shows how our merciful God uses a disobedient prophet as a type 
of the Messiah. Our merciful God uses a disobedient or unwilling prophet as a type, as a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of Christ. So let's first look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll see how merciful our God is in his declaration to Jonah. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of... Well, let's hold on before we keep going. Uh, It's way too easy for us to skip over what we just read. We just read the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. Skimming over that would be like sitting down to dinner with your parents and they ask you how school was that day. And you said, chemistry was kind of boring. I got an A on a math test. I sat down with the Queen of England to have lunch. She offered me a job. Then I went to football practice. Your parents would say, back up. What happened at lunch? So that's what I want us to do just for a moment is, is back up. And look at who is speaking and what he's doing in merely speaking to to Jonah. The infinite, eternal, omnipotent God who rules the world in perfect righteousness is stooping down to speak to a five-foot-tall pile of dust, a sinful piece of carbon. God owes us nothing. But he's so merciful that he stoops down to communicate with us. This is very crucial to our understanding of God and of Christianity. God cannot be known apart from his revealing himself to us. Christianity is not the result of thousands and thousands of years of the best and brightest prophets, the best scholars, uh, the best theologians trying to look at nature and figure out something about God. Ours is a religion that is a result of not of us moving toward God, but of God moving toward us. Even though we're sinful, finite creatures, God in his mercy has revealed himself to us. And what's God's ultimate act of revelation? What's his ultimate moving toward us? It's Christ, the word of God who became flesh, according to John 1. He's the final and definitive way that God's spoken to us. If God in, in 700 BC ceased to, to reveal himself, we would not have the fullness of God's revelation. We wouldn't have all that God intended to reveal about himself. But since we live under the New Testament, we live in the New Testament era, we have the full and complete revelation of who God is. It's Christ. In Colossians, we see that Uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God. We have a perfect and full image of God in the man, Christ Jesus. So we must submit ourselves to this revelation. Is that your posture when you come to Scripture? Are you coming humbly as one who is wholly dependent on God for any knowledge about him? Friends, your reading of God's word will greatly benefit if that's your posture. If you come to the word each morning, I would encourage you to pray a short prayer confessing your dependence and then trust that God answers those prayers. He delights to come and reveal himself to those who want to know him. So we've looked at just the fact that God reveals himself as merciful. Now let's look at the contents of God's word to Jonah Jonah's called to Nineveh. Nineveh is in Assyria. That's 
not in Israel. And the fact that it's not in Israel is uh, the reason many people think this is why Jonah is reluctant to go there. Um, Jonah thinks that the Ninevites don't deserve to hear from God. But here we see that God um, has a heart for the nations. He's not the God of the Jews only. It's true that God has a special covenant relationship with Israel, but it's also true that God is sovereign and can show mercy to whomever he wants. Uh, after all, Israel's just as unworthy of God's gracious mercy uh, than Nineveh. Deuteronomy 7 says this, For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the, love lo the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. As we think about God's grace as we think about missions to foreign nations. We have many younger uh, people who are considering missions. We just got back from, uh, not we, we, the royal, you guys just got back from a, a trip to Turkey. Um, as we're thinking about missions, as we're thinking about evangelism towards our friends, our family, and our neighbors, we have to have this as our starting point. The fact that none of us deserve God's grace any more or less than anyone else. And everyone is in need of that same grace in order to be saved. If you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling far from God's grace, know that you are no less deserving of it than any other person in this room. It would be a shame to, to look at someone a few pews away from you and think, it makes sense that God would show her grace. She hasn't done the things that I've done. Worse yet, don't look at your neighbor who's currently flying a, a pride flag here in June and think that person's far less deserving of grace than I am. So we see that God's heart for the nations in calling, we see God's heart in calling Nineveh a foreign nation, city. Uh, we see that what God calls Jonah to do is to call out against Nineveh. Now on the surface that doesn't seem very merciful to call out against their sin, to have Jonah go and tell them, you are sinning against a holy God. But we cannot truly have mercy unless this is the first step in the process of mercy. God, in the end, will not show mercy to those who are in open rebellion against him. Those who receive God's mercy are those who let go of their sin, even their sin that they currently are not realizing that they're holding on to. The first step in repentance, if you've read Thomas Watson's book, some of us go through it occasionally, is repentance. The first step of repentance is seeing your sin. You have to see your sin in order to turn from it. You can't turn from what you do not know is sin. Someone who lies and lies and lies and lies, lies so much, can do so not realizing that they are sinning. They can be blinded by the fact that they've done it so much their conscience can be seared, or they cannot know in the first place that they're sinning. Confronting that person with God's word, showing him his sin, is an act of mercy. 
And Warnell, that's why church discipline is merciful. It's an attempt to wake people up to show them their sin. Are you willing to do the uncomfortable task of talking with those we love about their sin? I'm not talking about going around being critical and and nitpicking and every time someone does something that gets on our nerves, whether or not it's sin, jumping on them. After all, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. While that's true, it is not loving and not merciful to let a brother or sister continue in sin. Do you love your spouse, your children, your fellow church member enough to lovingly and gently confront them for their own good when they are in sin? When we share the gospel, do we shy away from presenting people with the law and the consequences of breaking it? It's a mercy to point out people's sin with gentleness and respect. But know that the world won't see it that way. Uh, Often when we go to UMKC's campus, uh, we'll we'll share the gospel with people and, and, and we'll do this. We'll point out their sin to them. And usually the response is... That's not nice. You can't go around doing this to people. You're not going to, what's the saying? You you catch more flies with with sugar than with vinegar. Um, That's the world's posture, but that's actually not a loving way to go around to people, is allowing them to continue in sin. But we're in the new covenant, so we don't stop there. What was partially concealed in Jonah's time Uh, that's been clearly revealed in the New Testament is the object to which we turn. We turn to Christ. We don't want to leave people uh, without sharing the gospel, with just condemning their sin and not offering them the hope that is in Christ. The point of repentance isn't just to turn to sin and enter into this neutral state of righteousness. Uh, The point is to turn to Christ and cling to his righteousness. So my encouragement is whether you're talking to a believer or an unbeliever, don't neglect to preach Christ. Finally, in God's call to Jonah, see that God says, their evil has come up against me. This is Nineveh we're talking about, which is a major city in Assyria. These are the people, uh, last year Mark was preaching through Isaiah. We heard clearly, these are the people that are ripping through Israel, uh, that are killing men, women, children, that are decimating cities. These actions have not gone unnoticed by God. The enemies of God's people will be judged. Their sins will by no means go unpunished. They will be held responsible for them. These sins will be paid for either in eternity or by Christ on the cross if they repent and trust in him. So if you're being wronged, if you're under the affliction of a sinful father, a boss, an unjust family, or maybe even a spouse, that's not escaping the sight of God. We see that here. Their sins come up against God. We can trust that justice will always be done And we know that we do not need to take vengeance ourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So since that's true, 
We pray hard that justice will be done and that our persecutors may even come to repent. So God's called Jonah to arise and go. And Jonah arises and goes the other way. In verses 3 through 13, we see that the disobedience of an unwilling prophet. We see how foolish it is. Uh, We see that it brings discipline. We see that it's only a partial obedience. Um, We see God's mercy in it. So we're going to look at four truths about disobedience from uh, from verses 3 through 13. First, disobedience is foolish. Disobedience is foolish. Look who Jonah is disobeying. Jonah is disobeying the God of all creation, and he knows it. The sovereign God who created and rules over the sea. Jonah flees to the sea to to attempt to get away from him. Uh, But Jonah is also disobeying the merciful God who offers salvation to rebellious cities and sinners. Quinn and I were just talking this morning about uh, the fact that we can, it's a good thing to go to God's law um, when we are in sin to feel conviction over it. But as many Baptists in our past and some Congregationalists point out, uh, it's even more convicting to go to the cross. We're not only sinning when we sin against a father who gives us laws. We're sinning against a loving father. How much harder is it for us on our conscience when not only we sin against maybe an unloving boss who rightly gives us rules, but when we sin against a loving and caring father. We make a choice every time we disobey, every time we sin. Each time we sin, we're choosing to face the consequences of going against God rather than facing the consequences of following him. Both disobedience and obedience have consequences. But if we trust that God is kind and wise and that the laws that come from him are kind and wise, we'll trust that therefore are good, even if they're hard to keep, even if we in our nature, our sinful nature, don't agree with them at first. The end of disobedience is destruction, but the end of gospel obedience is life, even if it's hard. Uh, the, The immediate consequences of sitting on the couch are very different from the immediate consequences of getting up and going to the gym, but the long term repercussions look very different. We so often sin against God's wise will. That's the human experience. It's one of foolishly thinking to ourselves, I can get away with this, or there, there will be no consequences for this sin. Really what we're saying is, I know better than God. Proverbs say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Look at how the sailors react to God's revelation. When told that they must throw Jonah overboard, their reaction is, Nevertheless, they rode hard. Nevertheless, they rode hard. Although they've received direct revelation, whether or not their intentions were good, whether or not they didn't want to kill this seemingly innocent man or not, uh, 
they disobeyed and sought to do it on, in their own power, row against God's storm he brought against it. We're so foolish that sometimes we can do that very thing. We can disobey a direct command and think we are being faithful. Uh, Peter gives us two examples of this. In Matthew 16, when Jesus reveals that he's going to the cross to die, that that's God's good will, how does Peter respond? He says, far be it from you, Lord. Peter thought he was doing well. He thought he was being a faithful disciple. But obviously in Jesus' response, who says, get behind me, Satan, Peter was mistaken. Then after Jesus' resurrection and ascension in Acts 10, uh, Peter does something familiar, similar. He's in uh, Joppa. If you'll notice that he's in Joppa, the same port city where Jonah leaves from. Uh, it takes him three visions to be convinced to eat what he, what the Old Testament says is unclean. He's hesitant to do that. Uh, you'd think after the second direct revelation from God, he would have gotten the picture, but he was so stubborn and thought he was offering service to God by not doing that, uh, that it took a third vision. So as we seek to be conformed to God's will against even our best notions, I would urge us to rely on the community of the church for this. So make sure we're having close friendships in the church. Make sure we're meeting with people regularly um, so that we can have brothers and sisters examine our lives. Trust your brothers and sisters. Trust your husband or wife when they show you from Scripture where you're erring. Next, as we're looking at different aspects of disobedience, we see that partial obedience is not obedience. Jonah, uh, there's one other mention of Jonah in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings 14. He prophesies that uh, Israel will expand its boundaries, and he does so willingly and gladly. But when he's called to prophesy uh, to Israel's enemies, he disobeys. If you were to ask your daughter to clean her room, for instance— she made her bed but left all her clothes on the floor, uh, she would be disobeying. Partial obedience is no obedience. All right knowledge of God is born from obedience, says one theologian. All right knowledge of God is born of obedience. Look at Jonah's uh, profession in verse 9, this really accurate doctrinal profession. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. We all see that that's true, and Jonah himself believed that. Uh, but what we also see is the hypocrisy in that. This may be kind of the first sign of Jonah repenting, him realizing against the one against whom he's sinning. Uh, but regardless, um, he, would have, he would have confessed that before he fled to the sea. Um, he is hypocritically showing that he does not truly understand who he is sinning against when he makes this profession and then disobeys. We often do this. We can go to God's word. We can encounter God and nod our heads to the truths that we read. And then moments later, when someone interrupts our study or when we get to work, uh, we can blatantly disobey what we just read in the clear commands of Scripture. So our, our prayer as we're reading Scripture ought to be, I believe what I'm reading, Lord. Help my unbelief.
Next, we see that disobedience brings discipline. Disobedience brings discipline. Yahweh is the one who hurls this great wind against the sea, who uh, stops Jonah in his tracks. He's doing this as an act of discipline. Rather than letting Jonah go on in rebellion, he stops him with this display of divine sovereignty over creation. The author of Hebrews, uh, quoting Proverbs 3, says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God's a kind father who disciplines those he loves. So if you're sitting here this morning and you feel afflicted or you feel distant from God, Know that God may be softening your heart through removing the peace that he gives to us as believers. Are you in physical pain? You can trust that God is not punishing you in that pain. This is not punishment. For in Christ, for Christians, we know that all punishment has been removed in Christ on the cross. That's the good news we sung about in It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, we, we sung, my sin, not in part, but the whole, not will be nailed to the cross, not will be taken away, but it is nailed to the cross. I, present tense, bear it no more. Not a drop of God's wrath remains on you if you are a Christian. If you're under affliction, if you're under pain or suffering, know, Christian, that there is no wrath in that painful affliction. Friends, if, if, if avoiding God's discipline, though, is not enough to keep us from sin, know that your sin also affects others. The sailors were caught up in this, uh, in this discipline that was brought on Jonah. Fathers, when you sin, when you fly off the handle in a, in a fit of rage, know that you are deeply impacting your family, perhaps for generations. Mothers, when you have an ungodly attitude, your attitude brings down the, 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 the feeling of the whole household. Friend, when you sin, you're impacting your circle of friends in ways you probably aren't aware. So know that your sin affects others. That's not the primary reason we don't sin, of course, but that should weigh on us when we do. See also how kind God is in verse 15. In verse 15, the sea ceases from its raging. When God's purposes have been accomplished, he relents. He doesn't discipline beyond what is necessary. God is perfectly righteous. He does what is right, no more and no less. If you're under God's affliction... You are not under the affliction of an angry God who is out of control. You are under the affliction of a measured and righteous father. Finally, uh, we see that God uses disobedience, even disobedience, to accomplish his saving purposes. Uh, Even sinful and stubborn men can be used of God to accomplish salvation in others. That is comforting for us. We are all sinful people. Uh, That's what causes uh, 
Paul to receive from the Lord the truth that my, the Lord's grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God uses crooked sticks like you and me to draw straight lines. So don't think that we have to be perfect or reach some level of intelligence to share the gospel. Uh, Don't think that your past sins have disqualified you from proclaiming God's grace to others. God's calling all of us to bear witness to him, to evangelize. I think Ken Kinney is an excellent example of this, of, of trusting that the gospel message is enough, of bearing scorn and um, hostility, even from family members, uh, of going to them, not believing that he is a, it's his eloquence that will save them, but faithfully proclaiming the gospel. So let's look at the final few verses of this chapter now to see that Jonah is clearly meant to foreshadow the Messiah. Jonah is clearly meant as a type of Christ. A type is a shadow whose greater reality is the substance. A type is a shadow whose greater reality is the substance. It's a historical person or event that God has ordained in the Old Testament that tells us about a New Testament gospel truth. So Jonah is a type of Christ. God ordained the events in the life of Jonah to point us to the Messiah. Jonah cannot save us, but he's pointing us to the one who can. So we've already seen how Jesus himself is the word of God incarnate, the full and final manifestation of God's communication with us. But now let's look briefly at how Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater prophet, Jesus is God himself, and Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is the greater prophet, he is God himself, and he is a better sacrifice. Jesus is the greater prophet. Where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeds. Jonah rebels against the will of God. But in Christ, we have a prophet who delights to do God's will. In John 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And later in John 12, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus is the willing prophet who never rebelled against his father. His word is trustworthy. His testimony is true. We must believe what Jesus says about God, about himself, about our sin and our need for him. We see that Jesus is God himself. Jesus proves that he is God himself using this very story, using Jonah chapter one. Uh, I love times in the gospel of John when Jesus refers to himself as I am. He calls himself I am, ego a me, 24 times in the gospel. Seven times he just says I am. I get chills every time when I read John 10 and he says what seems to be grammatically incorrect but is purposeful 
Before Abraham was, I am. But in Matthew 8, he is doing more than merely claim, stating that he is God. He is proving it. In Matthew 8, Jesus is sleeping in the boat as Jonah was sleeping in the boat. Who stills the storm in Jonah 1? Yahweh. Who stills the storm in Matthew? Yahweh. The incarnate Yahweh. When we read Matthew 8 in the context of this story, in the context of the whole Bible, we see more clearly that Jesus' action there is a claim of divinity. Finally, we see that Jesus is a better sacrifice. The sailors here are in peril. They do all they can on their own to get themselves out of danger. They, they throw all their valuable cargo overboard. They row as hard as they can, but nothing can save them except what God, through the prophet Jonah, has revealed. A sacrifice to appease the angry sea. And as Jonah was thrown into the sea, so Jesus was thrown into the angry sea of God's wrath. And Jesus is a perfect and an acceptable sacrifice. For all who are in Christ, God's wrath has been perfectly pacified. Micah 7, 19 says that God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And we see that he does that in Christ. The verse we read this morning from 2 Corinthians says that Jesus was made sin for us. God laid our sins on Christ, and by the hands of others, he was cast into God's wrath. And then he was swallowed by the tomb. But as Jonah was in the fish for only three days, so Jesus was in the earth for only three days. Jesus says in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And as Jesus was not left in the tomb, neither will we who have faith be left in our sins. For we have died with him, and we who have died with him have also been raised up together with him to newness of life. So friends, abandon all other efforts of appeasing God. The only place we can run from an angry God is into the arms of a pacified God. Trust in Christ and rest in the peace that we have with God through the greater Jonah. Let's pray. Let's take a moment of silent reflection before we pray, and then I will close us in prayer. Father, we praise you for the acceptable sacrifice you have given us in love. 
for the greater Jonah that we can look to with a certain hope for salvation. Lord, we pray this morning that we would see how merciful you are in that, that we would see our disobedience and repent of it, and that we would cling to the one who was thrown into your wrath on behalf of undeserving sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.